You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. As we end our first season and go into the holidays contemplating the promise of a new year and all that we hope it might entail, it seems fitting that our last guest be Johnny Pollard, the meditation and wisdom teacher whose energy is nothing less than absolutely contagious. Sitting across from him, listening to him speak, or watching a video with him on YouTube all seem to have the same effect. He's got this soothing quality that almost teaches through osmosis, allowing you to understand things through the examples of his embodiment rather than just these fancy words. We touch upon cultural shifts, what they mean and how best to navigate them, and moving forward into the horizon of not only a new year, but maybe even a new era. This is Johnny Pollard, and we are talking about what's contemporary now. Johnny Pollard, meditation teacher, wisdom teacher, father, friend, all around incredible human. I wanted to pick your brain on so many different things today, but let's start with the easy question, which is what, in your opinion, is contemporary now? What's contemporary now is present moment awareness open to the possibility of change and expansion in my relationship to what's happening in the world, what's happening in my immediate reality and also the world at large. Speaking of the world at large, we've gone through such an incredibly transformational period on this planet over the past few years, and that's been something we've seen manifest in culture as well as people's neurology and obviously made something like mental health a very popular subject. What types of changes or things have you been noticing? What I'm noticing is a dismantling of the resistance to change through an enforced change. And I think that the psychology, or neurology, as you put it, is that there is a choiceless demand by what's happening in the world for us to shift. And we can either do this resistantly or we can prospectively embrace it, see it as the great inevitable. Mm -hmm. What everything's doing is leading us to an understanding that the current system, the current way in which we operate isn't ultimately empowering. We have handed over an enormous amount of personal power so that when something happens, we feel so disorientated, so put out, inconvenienced and left fearful, anxious and worried about what next. And if there's a lesson to be learned here, it is how we can rely more on our internal compass to determine what is reliable and stable irrespective of what the world is doing and how it's changing, we have the capacity to be in contact with something within us that is constant, steady, and ultimately the most reliable to determine how best to move forward. So I think that what's happening right now and what's been happening is a wonderful opportunity in the making for humanity to evolve out of being hyper-identified with determining who and what we are and what our value is and how we can contribute by what the world tells us we can and can't. There is an opportunity here to shift inwardly and make these determinations from our own internal reckoning. One of the things that really jumped out at me during one of your other interviews was a comment you had made about everything being reconcilable in the present moment and that it was a matter of attachment or mental dexterity. Could you kind of elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. I ascribe to a perspective of reality Mm -hmm. that ultimately everything belongs to one whole cohesive field everything that we experience from our physiology 
right down to our abstract consciousness experience is all an emergent phenomenon out of a field of intelligence that underlies everything within the universe. So we've just taken a big, juicy, deep, abstract dive into something here. And I'll try and qualify that statement that I've just made in a pragmatic way. But so what I'm suggesting is that everything belongs to one whole indivisible field. And that includes what appears to be polar opposites of perspective, position and behavior, values and attitudes, just like masculine contains feminine and feminine contains masculine. We can never look at any polar end in isolation of its supposed opposite. We can never really understand masculine in the absence of feminine, and we can never really understand good in the absence of evil. Why? Because they're inextricably linked. They're all one thing. And if we look at all things that appear as opposites on a spectrum, then they immediately belong to each other. And then what we understand is that there is no absolute one or the other. And so when we talk about things that appear irreconcilable, it is only our rigid attachment to an idea that we are absolutely one way. Your position is unchangeable and therefore we are immortal enemies. And this is only a thing made of mind stuff. It's not reality. We all have the capacity to comprehend what it's like to be another, even if it's not our preference to be that way. And it's only our resistance to do so that keeps us locked in these binary states and inevitably in conflict. The resolution to conflict is the recognition of where another is at, what their perspective is, how they arrived at that, and irrespective of whether you agree with it, to simply understand that they have arrived at that through a set of circumstances that has led them to have that experience. And if the other is able to do that with you, then what have we got? We've got patient, compassionate attention that can employ the vast intelligence that is inherent within us. It's unleashed. It's otherwise suppressed by our rigidity in our fundamental position. If we can relinquish the rigidity in our fundamental positions and consider the positions of others, then immediately we move along the spectrum pathway, the bridge. We move along it to understand how someone has arrived at where they're at and to what extent I can see myself in them. And when we employ this discipline of consideration, self-reflection, we become an immensely powerful exponent of wisdom and a pathway for resolution. And this is what we desperately need in our world right now. This gift, this skill. Yeah, we're living in a time that is, in my opinion, probably the most divisive that most of us have ever seen in our lifetime. So mm-hmm. everything that you're saying is obviously incredibly applicable to this particular moment in time. Do you feel that that sort of rigidity or attachment to particular positions has only worsened over recent years? Is that what it is that we're seeing with such a polarized culture? Yeah, I think it's definitely intensified. Mm-hmm. I would say that it's become more expressed. And that's just simply because of the force that causes this kind of psychological positioning in the first place, which is fear, fear of other. And fear of other is, again, a gross misconception of the underlying nature of reality. There is no other. It's all one thing. Reality is all part of one whole indivisible field of intelligence that we belong to. This sounds like a pretty abstract statement. Anyone who meditates will likely understand what I mean. It's not something that can necessarily be understood intellectually, but 
is viscerally understood through the direct experience. When one quietens down sufficiently, you can have this experience on the level of the senses that you feel palpably that you are a part of this whole thing. And the heart is open and swelling with love and care for the sacredness of our existence. And in the absence of that, we are bound by fear and fear begets fear. And the world is full of purveyors of fear. There are fear machines that are running 24-7, pumping that stuff out in a very potent, concentrated formula that is causing people involuntarily, physiologically, psychologically, and emotionally to react in a defensive way and double down into their corners, into their forts. And yeah, it's precarious. To say the least. Well, you know, you're bringing up meditation and as someone who teaches meditation, not only to your own clients, but you also run a teacher training program and facilitate different retreats and have offerings in that space. Have you seen an exponential growth in people seeking out that type of a thing? As far as I can ascertain, there is a steady take up of the practice. Mm -hmm. My personal teaching practice is steady. I Mm -hmm. wouldn't say that it is increased Mm -hmm. that much, but you look at Companies like Headspace and Calm and these mega tech platforms that facilitate the learning of meditation and remaining engaged in some kind of practice, you know, and they've got tens of millions of subscribers and users. This is a clear indicator that we can utilize these big platforms as a gauge statistically to see how much it's growing and they're just taking leaps and bounds and they report that During COVID, they just had massive spikes in subscriptions. Now, whether that means that people are actually using it and doing it or not is another story. But the idea of meditation is, I think, a lot more front and center in the hearts and minds of people that are experiencing high levels of anxiety and depression and um, overwhelm because of their life and what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. People are being more perspective in trying to resolve that rather than soothe themselves with substances and practices that reinforce denial mm-hmm. of what's going on. So yeah, I think it's fair to say that there is definitely a greater surge in the take up of self-reflection and taking responsibility because ultimately that's what meditation is. It's people willing to stop and connect with the reality of what they're experiencing and take some responsibility for the condition of their nervous system. Mm-hmm. With mental health being such a hot topic for all of the obvious reasons, I think the natural sort of response is the emergence of mental fitness trends and what that looks like, be it meditation or other practices that people have developed and written books about. But if you look at it through the lens of the professional community or those that consider themselves quite ambitious and perhaps think that introducing a meditation practice with any degree of regularity might soften their edges or hinder them from accomplishing as much in life. Obviously, that's a complete misunderstanding of what (laughs) meditation really is. So I wanted to also talk a little bit about your thoughts on the relationship between things like meditation and creativity and how having that practice actually expands your lens and your ability to not only problem solve, but also have more innovative ideas or Sure. I can respond to that specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, But before I do that, I always like to expand the parameter of the question. Mm -hmm. Most people come to meditation reactively because there's something undesirable that's happening inside. And 
there is a, a hope that that can be somehow resolved through practicing this thing called meditation Mm -hmm. as if it's some kind of device that we attach to ourselves that has some miraculous cure or effect that can cause the change that we're desiring. The reality is, as you know very well, that meditation is a mental process, Mm -hmm. is using what we have internally and adjusting our attention and awareness in specific ways that causes or elicits a psychophysiological response that realigns mind and body in some kind of coordination that causes restoration of our deeper nature. And the outcome of restoring and realigning the mind and body to our deeper nature is that our true nature emerges. We see a change in our instinctive response to challenges and demands in life in general, and even our value system perhaps, and what motivates us to do what we do, and therefore what we do changes. All of this occurs because of a a recontextualization to something that's deeper and more meaningful that we are experiencing. What generally occurs when people come to meditation is that the reason why they came to it quickly changes relative to the reason why they are going to continue with it if they've actually stuck with it for long enough to have that little breakthrough that I'm talking about, where there's a transference of awareness from being hyper-identified with the external world as the point of reference for who I am to an inner experience that dominates and resonates more deeply and more meaningfully and is more constant and reliable and feels more true to us. When that transference takes place, the meaning of why we meditate shifts. So now that I've kind of answered that, because people might be listening to this that have never meditated before, Mm -hmm. and we can talk about mental fitness, increase of energy and creativity and all those kinds of things. But what's, I think, most important for people that are considering learning to meditate, that all of those things happen. You do increase mental fitness, whatever that means. If mental fitness means that you can stay with the task and continue high quality output in your engagement in that activity for longer periods of time, then yeah, sure, that's definitely going to happen. But that's a side effect. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage you to consider a far more substantial reason for wanting to learn to meditate. And often people don't think about it because it's just not spoken about often enough. So any opportunity I have to talk about this, I do. Mm -hmm. So sorry, I kind of hijacked your question a little bit. So from what I can ascertain, People aren't aware of what they aren't aware of until they become aware of it. And it's only after we start meditating for a little while that we become really aware of how disconnected we have felt from what really matters and what's truly important. And furthermore, a sense of confidence or capability to be able to do something about that. Because most people feel a sense of discomfort, a disease in themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. And are quite overwhelmed at how incongruent where they're at, how they feel is with what they're doing and who they're hanging out with and what they're engaging in. There's a huge disparity and there's quite amount of energy and effort that needs to be employed in constantly convincing ourselves that this is good and we should keep on going. This is what I observe in the work that I do in people as a common theme. 
Mm-hmm. One of the things that I really love for people that are listening to this that haven't got a meditation practice, and even the people that do, it's always nice to hear about it because they're all going to be nodding their head going, mm-hmm, I know exactly what you're talking about, <laughs> is that just beneath the surface of what feels irreconcilable with inside yourself, where you just feel confused and at a loss as to how to make change and where to go and what to do about the things that are happening inside of you that feel really difficult to resolve, whatever it might be, whether it stems from a deep trauma from abuse as a child to being trapped in a social circle situation where you just don't feel seen or heard or understood and you're just terrified about truly expressing what's going on inside of you because of the social contracts that we have about what we do and don't talk about. Beyond all of these things, there is a place within inside of you that is totally resolved, deeply aware and intelligent and capable, confident, powerful. Every single one of us has this, is this. Not has this, is this. We are this. This is our nature. And we only have to spend a little bit of time employing some elegant mental processes to the condition that we're experiencing. And in a very short period of time, what will be revealed is this place that I'm talking about, this place within inside of us that carries a calm knowingness, an insight about this moment that enables us to make decisions that might be initially a little bit scary to make changes in our life so that we are living congruently with our deepest value system and that we're able to act and engage with the world from this place. And when we're doing this, then everything becomes so much better. And this is what's not happening. People are very disconnected from this. And Mm -hmm. the call to action is this. This is the most important thing that we can be doing. Never mind about becoming more efficient. Mm -hmm. We don't want to become more efficient at doing something that we don't like doing. Actually ask the question, are you really enjoying what I'm doing? And if you are, then carry on as you are. It's great. But if you're not, stop denying it. Stop ignoring it and do something about it. This is the most important thing that we can be doing because while ever we are engaged in something that we are not happy about, whether it be a relationship, work, social circles, whatever, we are having to employ a degree of ignorance and denial. And when we are deliberately practicing ignorance and denial, we are susceptible to being influenced and coerced into things that are ultimately going to just lead us even further down the path of being disconnected from what we truly want. And at some point, we have to learn how to take responsibility for what it is we desire in our life. And meditation is just a very elegant gateway for all of this to start happening very, very quickly. So anyway, that's my response to your question. I mean, that was just incredible. It just reminded me of what it's like to talk to you because it's a very contagious energy that you tend to share with people. <laughs> but also it reminds me, I think a lot of people have this external locus of control and this feeling that life happens to them and they're having to anticipate 
and protect themselves from things because there's this underlying assumption that things could always go wrong or whatever it might be. And as a result, they're oftentimes unaware of how much impact they have on their own lives and the power of choice, perspective, practice, and all of these other things. But I remember someone having asked you a question about what they should do if they're in a group meditation or some group environment and someone else's energy is throwing them off. And you told them to remember that they're not just someone that's impacted by energy around them, but they're also someone that can transmute and transform energy around them because they too are a force within that same room. Do you at this point in your life ever find yourself stressed or having social anxiety? anxiety or being nervous or afraid or whatever it might be. And if so, in those moments, how do you remedy that type of a thing in real time? Yeah. So it's important that we understand the context of different body sensations, because all of those things you just described are Mm -hmm. essentially just body sensations that we assign Mm -hmm. a psychological narrative to, we assign meaning to. Mm -hmm. It's really the meaning that we assign that is either the problem or the solution more so than the actual sensations themselves. The sensations themselves are like the weather comes and goes, anxiety, feeling flat, tired, fatigued, stressed, sad, angry, resentful, ashamed, all of these things. They're all sensations that rise and fall relative to the circumstances that you find yourself in. Whether these sensations are debilitating or ultimately a pathway to becoming liberated is really the relationship to the sensations. And so to answer your question, do I experience any of those sensations? Yes. All of the above. Yes. I experience them as body sensations. And what's different between me and somebody else that may find themselves debilitated or bound by these sensations is that my relationship to them is that, oh, okay, this is something that's happening in the body. I can witness the sensations. I'm not identified with the condition of the body and the sensations that are taking place as a means of determining what's really going on in this moment. It's only when there isn't sufficient internal space to be able to witness body sensations and the subsequent thinking that comes with it that we feel trapped and bound and suffocated. When we meditate, we create immense space within ourselves where we are able to witness what's going on inside the body, sensations such as anxiety and go, oh, okay, my body is experiencing anxiety. And, oh, look, there's a sequence of thinking that I would assign to those sensations. And when we have sufficient space inside of ourselves and we're able to witness the body sensations and the the psychology that we assign to those sensations, the story, when we are able to witness it, we are immediately in a position of immense power to cause transformation. And the call to action is rather than introduce another story, simply allow the sensations to take place, allow the story to play out and continue witnessing it with an accepting, compassionate attention. And what we are declaring there is, I am not my mind, I am not my body. I'm not the stories that run through my mind. I'm not the sensations that run through my body. I can witness these things coming and going. And what is... The deepest truth of me is the fact that I can compassionately and 
caringly, kindly watch what's taking place inside of me without needing to have a judgmental critiquing opinion of it or something outside of me that I can assign as the cause, the blame for this thing that's taking place. And immediately we are free. We're free from that. That's the power of a regular practice of meditation. That's what it affords us. You touched upon something that I think is a really relevant point, which is if people have a sufficient amount of internal space, right? I think a lot of people are operating with a limited amount of mental capacity, emotional capacity, coping mechanisms, whatever you want to label that as. Even today, obviously, the world is in a better place than it was even last year in certain ways, but some people just haven't managed to kind of let go of the shape that they had taken throughout that time. So what do you think are good ways for us to expand and create more of that space within us that allows for that agility? Is it also just meditation? Well, meditation and then what meditation affords us, which is Mm -hmm. awareness. Mm -hmm. Once we've got the awareness, what are we doing with it? Mm -hmm. It's an evaluation of our priorities and our value system. What do you value? What's important, really? And to question to what extent what you prioritize and what you value is really enriching your life or depleting it. And what we'll find if you're feeling generally at odds with life, overwhelmed and struggling with the demands in your life, it's probably because you're simply not prioritizing things that really yield true benefit to your spirit, to your nervous system, to your capacity to just effortlessly be in the present moment without feeling agitated, worried, concerned, fretting for an impending dangerous scenario that demands that you be on high alert all the time. You're able to take time on a day-to-day basis and check in with yourself and Sincerely be with yourself, feel what you're feeling and be honest about what it is that you are engaged in and what it is you are doing. And is it really serving what you know to be good for you? And if the answer is no, then we don't want to freak out and we certainly don't want to try and force ourselves immediately to just drop everything and change because that's just not going to happen because old habits die hard. and for the most part, most of our bad habits, we're probably likely addicted to because most of the things that we employ and engage ourselves in are mechanisms of soothing or quelling anxiety and fear. Most of the activity that we engage in, if we're not in contact with the deepest part of ourselves, is generally going to be a fear-based reaction. That's a pretty extreme general statement that I'm making and (laughs) I'm doing it to antagonize the audience or a bit more to be a protagonist actually, to just challenge you to see whether there's any truth in what I'm saying here. And if not, great, but I strongly encourage everybody to constantly reflect on what's motivating me to do what I do. Is it coming from a deep place of creativity, a sense of immense power and capability to make a contribution to the world, something that's really relevant, that advances our story here on the planet, our experience, or am I in pure survival mode, hustling to get by? And 
if you've gotten to this far in the podcast and you haven't like switched over to <laughs> some other thing, I suspect you're very interested in this stuff. And that is a qualifier for deep consideration of everything that I'm saying here. You're a candidate for deep reflection. And the call to action is go there daily, reflect, and stop ignoring what you know. Stop ignoring what you are seeing and be experimental with how you attempt to break old habits that keep you locked into things that you know just don't serve you. Incredible. I think we absolutely have to commit to a part two because I could go on forever. And I think that we've given an incredible amount of things for people to think about. I absolutely, as always, enjoy the drops of wisdom. And each and every time I think I'll just enjoy conversation, but I'm without a doubt blown away each and every time. So thank you again. (laughs) My pleasure, brother. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. Special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, Joseph Topmiller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Saw for the original theme music, and Aaron Marr for visual design. Subscribe now for a new episode each week, and for additional content, find us on social or at whatscontemporary.com.